I'm Graham from Oxford, England. I'm David from New York. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me. If you'd like to support the show like I did, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the show is Daryl Hall. He's, of course, half of the legendary chart-busting duo Hall & Oates. Uh, He sang lead and uh, wrote or co-wrote six number one hits with the band um, and had a a really astonishing string of chart successes uh, beginning in the late 1970s and running through the mid-1980s. Now he's decided to bring the concerts to his house um, with a series called Live from Daryl's House that features musical collaborations with uh, artists as diverse as uh, Smokey Robinson and Todd Rundgren. Um, It runs live uh, and streaming on the web. Uh, Daryl, welcome to The Sound of Young America. It's really great to have you on the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. I had never heard your early work. And when I say your early work, I'm talking about your very, very early work. Um, until I started preparing for this interview. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I want to play this song called Girl, I Love You that you <laughs> recorded. That's early work, all right. Yeah, that you recorded with your band. Um, I was 17. Let's hear a little bit of it. All right. Seventeen when you recorded that song, it's a it's a very it's a very assured production for uh, being a seventeen year old. You co-wrote it too, right? Yeah, well, I basically did write it. I mean, uh, somebody got their name on it. Not a, not atypical in the music business, but uh, that was my song. And uh, well, the reason it sounds professional is because it was it was uh, the ba- the backup people were Gamble and Huff. <laughs> So I, I don't think you get more professional than that. This was in the beginning of of their career as well as mine. Uh, uh, they were they're a few years older than me, but uh, we were all starting together in Philadelphia. And uh, I think you could hear that uh, that uh, Philly sound in there. I mean, that's that's a quintessential early Philly record. Your really early band had this great band name that it was like totally the band name that you name your band when you're 17 which was the exact tones <laughs> yep, yep perfect name it was you know everybody thought it was because of the temptations which it sort of was but our play on the whole thing was we we were all uh, uh, freshmen at temple university oh sure so that's where it came from <laughs> um so the picture that i imagine when i was imagining your early days in philadelphia i have to admit is heavily influenced by the Frank Stallone scenes in Rocky. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, w- was it really like that? W- were, were you really, you know, s- singing on street corners with the stylistics? Absolutely. You know that beginning in Rocky when they're all standing around and singing that song, Take Me Back, Won't You Take Me? You know, in, in the original Rocky movie? Sure. 
Well, that is real. I mean, when I say real, that was Frank singing, by the way, and uh, and and some of his friends. That's the way we started. Um, it wasn't necessarily around a, a, a burning um, oil can, but it was standing on corners in front of uh, delis and uh, you know uh, hanging out uh, literally on the street. Uh, and it was sort of a roving thing where, where the best singers in various neighborhoods would get together. And there was a lot of sort of uh, doo-wop competition kind of thing going on. And uh, it was a, a really interesting scene, sort of, sort of like uh, the early rap days, only using music, street corner music. And that's really how I got started in the Philly scene. Now, I was, I was a musician before that. You know, I've, I've been, my mother was a musician. She was in a band and I was classically trained and I was, I've been a musician since I was four years old. Uh, but as far as the real Philly scene thing goes, that was very Rocky like. That song we heard was, uh, was released in, in the mid sixties. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you continue to work in the music industry in Philadelphia, uh, between the mid '60s and, and the early 1970s, w- when you started to record uh, mm-hmm. with John Oates, right? Um, w- what kind of work were you doing? I was doing uh, uh, songwriting and session work, and and doing a lot, uh, sort of a catch-all thing. I was I was loosely associated with. Uh, TSOP, uh, which was the the house band at Sigma Sound, which made all those Philly records, and uh, I was on the what I'd call the B team. And uh, I, if they needed an extra keyboard player, a background singer, I, they would call me up. And uh, and I, but I was just sort of a hang, hanger outer in that scene. Uh, again, I was just a kid, and I was still going to school. So, um, uh, but I was around it, you know. I was I was in the midst of it. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I worked with the stylistics and the Delphonics and, uh, three degrees and Jerry Butler and all these people, you know, I, uh, I was just there for it all. Were there any particular, were there any particular records that you had a B team role in that, that were really exciting? Like, was there a song that you played a keyboard part on or sang a backup vocal on that, that became a hit? Uh, I played on, uh, a record by a group called the Electric Indian and it was i it made the top of the charts i don't know if it was t- uh, number 1 in the billboard charts but it was uh, it was way up there it was called kimosabi and it's one of the stupidest records you ever heard in your life <laughs> well let's hear a little bit of the electric indian and kimosabi Okay, so now that we've heard that dumb record, um, did you really meet John Oates in the aftermath of a gang fight? That's absolutely true. Uh, we've told that story a million times, and uh, 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 it's it's really what happened. I mean, we were I, I, I was uh, my Temptones had a had that record "Girl I Love You" out, and uh, and uh, and John had a, a song called "I Need Your Love," which is also on the box set. I think that's where you found this stuff. And uh, he he had a band with his sister and with some other people called the Masters. And we both had these forty fives out, and uh, we were part of a, uh, a sort of a record hop, whatever you want to call it, where people would go and lip sync their records. Uh, yeah, a fight broke out, and the show got you know 
chaos ensued and uh, and everybody was sort of beating it out the doors and uh and uh, we we were it was on a second floor and John and I both uh, jumped on the same elevator at the same time rather and uh that was how I found out that he was also a student at Temple and uh it all sort of went from there as a a friendship blossomed his his roots were a little bit different than yours. I mean, when he when he makes a, a back to his roots album, it's a little folkier, yeah, um, than what you were doing. What what did you like about his, about this work that he was doing musically when you guys first started playing together and, and being friends? Well, I found it interesting that he was such a folky and 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 knew all these things because uh, there was a there's a there was a very uh, um, vibrant folk scene as well as an R&B scene in Philadelphia. And I didn't know very much about it because I was so much in the other side. And uh, being a student, students are always interested in, you know, it's, it's part of the learning process. And he had all these bluegrass songs and, and uh, you, know, you know, Bob Dylan and things like that, who I actually never listened to. And, uh, but especially the, the really raw stuff, the, the old, old-timey bluegrass music and things like that, that re- really interested me because it's its own kind of soul. And uh, so he, when we became friends, we started sharing apartments because we were both students in downtown Philly. And uh, we would play these records, and I got a mandolin somewhere, and I tried to play that kind of stuff. And we would sit around on the, on the, you know, on on the front porch and stoop and uh, try and play these Jim and Jesse songs and things like that, Bill Monroe and all that. And uh, and it was a real departure from me. But that's that's really, he has his uh, a, a big part of him in that world and uh i won't say we diverge because we don't because he he sort of dragged me into it and i think there are elements of that music that has uh, that have entered into my songwriting style and i still love bluegrass music and all that kind of thing as all of this stuff was going on at the end of the 1960s um there were huge changes going on in in race relations in america that that uh, that really affected also the music world. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, with things like the Martin Luther King assassination, all of a sudden, all of these, uh, all of these uh, black artists who had been making, um, you know, traditional Motown records, you know, what you might call pop, you know, the sound of young America mm-hmm. records um, started, started making more uh, race conscious and culturally, Conscious music started to to be more independent, and yeah. soul music became you know took a turn for the you know for the blacks. It became self consciously black mm-hmm. music. How, how did that affect? How did that affect um, the two of you guys making making these R and B records and, and being white guys? It affected people's perception of us in, in in after that time, and and that sort of it coincided with when John and I first started recording together in the early seventies. And you're absolutely right. There was a, 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 the difference between the '60s and the '70s, as far as the schism that happened. This this uh, this thing that the, the, this line that was drawn in the sand was very distinct, mostly from radio standpoint and 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 critical standpoint and the outside. What I what musicians call the outside, and uh, uh, it it made it that much harder for us to get started in doing what we were doing, which was a very American kind of hybrid of uh, European and African elements. And, and, uh, and we had our own 
brand new version of that. You know, I mean, we weren't the first people ever to do anything like that, but we were certainly the first people ever to do it our way. And, and, and I think we influenced music uh, profoundly because of it, but it was, it was tough going. And in, and all through the seventies, it sort of put us left footed. You know, we, we didn't know how to uh, get, get what we were all about across to people. And there was a lot of misconception and, you know, people throwing out these ridiculous, uh, um, uh, blue eyed soul things and all that kind of nonsense. Uh, um, it, 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 it was sort of disconcerting and, and uh, ultimately depressing, but I think we finally come out of that in, in, in modern times. And I think that's, that also has a lot to uh, – our resurgence and, and uh, the fact that we're on a whole new generation's radar has a lot to do with the fact that we are on the, uh, we're on the post side of that. You had recorded quite a bit as Hollow Notes before you had a real smash hit in, in the seventies. You, oh, you, yeah. you started recording with with the very sort of, sort of at the very beginning of the seventies, and um, your first real smash was Sarah Smile. You recorded a song uh, uh, on the previous album, which was re-released after Sarah Smile became a hit. That that I really like. That I want to play a little bit of. It's called "She's Gone" from nineteen seventy four. Sorry, Charlie, for the imposition. I think I got, got, I got the strength to carry on. Yeah, I need a drink and a quick decision. Now it's up to me who she's gone. She's gone. What was it like to be recording these records and and having? I mean, you you had you were you were charting, but but nothing was really getting traction. Um, were you? Did you feel like you were trying to figure out what you were and trying to figure out what people liked about what you were doing? Yeah. I, I think we spent a long time trying to figure out how to put it ourselves across to, uh, to, to the world in a coherent way. I, I'm not even sure we managed to pull it off all through the 70s, really. Uh, in the 70s, it, there wasn't as much pressure by record companies or by the world to have hit records. Uh, the, the people, artists had a lot more room to grow. Uh, you know, what they called underground radio in those days, FM radio, was uh, we were fine on that. You know, we got a lot of airplay. She's Gone was played. And even though we didn't have, uh, quote, chart success, we were out there working. We uh, uh, we we had a very uh, uh, a strong uh, uh, career at that point. You know, we were we were making money and we were out there constantly touring. I want to play. Um, I want to play one of your uh, one of your really huge hits from late in the nineteen seventies, "Rich Girl." And I want to play it. I want to start at the very beginning because I think just think the intro is just so tasty. So uh, let's hear "Rich Girl" from Hollow Notes, nineteen seventy seven, featuring the lead vocals of my guest Daryl Hall. You're a rich girl, and you're gone too far, cause you know it don't matter anyway. You can rely on the old man's money. You can rely on the old man's money. It's a stiff girl, but it's gone too far. Cause you know it don't matter anyway. Say money, money won't get you too far, get you too far. 
so something that I started wondering, Daryl, when I was looking back at your discography was there were so many R&B singers who, um, and especially the sort of the sweeter ones that went into the 1970s, saw the disco explosion, um, started recording disco records, sort of fell behind the curve and got eaten by 1981 and 1982 and, you know, uh, F disco and the whole anti-disco backlash. Yeah. What was your, I mean, that was such a huge, a huge cultural force over like a, only a few years. What was, what was your relationship to that huge change in the, in the uh, music industry? It was a very strange time. Uh, The late seventies, like around 76, well, about 77, was uh, all the things we're talking about, this schism between uh, what people perceived as that reached its apex uh, with, the, with the whole punk thing and the whole rock crit thing that, that, uh, that uh, uh, followed and in, in, actually created the punk scene. Um, uh, and then you had disco on the other side, and it left people. It, it left a lot of people very, very uh, not no, uh, confused uh, in, in the music business, not knowing what to do. John and I were, you know, uh, we weren't disco artists. We weren't, obviously, we weren't punk artists. But we, I, I, in my open brain, I embrace both styles. I, I, you know, I like all kinds of cool music. And, uh, um, uh, you know, I think if you listen to our records, then you'll hear elements of both of those styles in, 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 uh, in some of my songs and John's songs. Um, but it was a very, very tough time, you know, and, and I think it, 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 it didn't really resolve itself to any degree until about 1980, 81, something like that. In, in 1980, 1981, around then, is when you started to have this uh, sort of golden string of giant smash hits. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if, the, I, I wonder how the preceding 10 years of recording as Holland Oates um, prepared you for the craziness of um, of being, you know, super hit makers rather than uh, working musicians with records on the radio. Yeah, it was it. Uh, our whole careers prepared us for that. Our our whole lives, you know. I, I uh, as I said before, I started s- singing in front of people when I was about four years old. John was only about seven, you know. So we were child. We, we were used to be in front of audiences and we were used to being in the studio and being recording artists. So all these things and all the ups and downs and the disco versus punk and, and, and the, the ups and downs of people's critical perception of us, it all prepared us for this magnifying glass being on us between 80 and 85 that we were capable of dealing with it without losing our minds. Yeah. Soul, uh, one of my favorite hip-hop groups, released this album in 1989 um, that featured the song Say No Go that, uh, that sampled one of your vocal hooks from that, uh, from that record. Mm-hmm. And it's a really epical, that De La Soul album, Three Feet High and Rising, is uh, a really huge record in the history of hip-hop, in part because it sampled so broadly and um, the effects on sampling in hip-hop were... 
uh, sort of catastrophic because they, they ended up getting sued by the Turtles, um, one of whose songs they had sampled, and it sort of, it sort of changed the face of sampling in hip-hop. Um, when, you first, when you first heard that song in, in 1989, first of all, how did you hear it, and, and what did you think about the whole situation? Well, it's an interesting story. I was doing a, uh, a video for a movie called Earth Girls Are Easy, and John and I had the closing, um, what the, you know, what they roll the credits over. They, they, they gave us the closing song. We cut, we cut some, uh, a version of Love Train. And so we were doing a video for that song. And, uh, you know, in between takes, you stand around, you stand around. And these kids came up to us, just 15 years old or whatever. And they had a boom box. And they said... Uh, Check this out, man. Check this out. And I went, what? What do you got there? They goes, we, uh, my, our, friends, uh, our friends used you on a song. And I had no idea what they were talking about. And they played me Say No Go on the boombox as I was standing there on the stage. Anyway, push couldn't shove me to understand a path to a base set. Consumers should have raised it in a first wave. Because second wave from believers and believers will walk to it and even talk to it and say, And uh, I listened to it, and I guess John was standing beside me. And we said, wow, that's really cool. I mean, that's really amazing. What a, what a great idea. You know, sampling somebody. I, you know, that was really new, new days for things like that. Now, I want to ask you about one other uh, epic, rein- great reinterpretation of that song. And uh, I wonder, I, I wonder uh, how you felt the first time you heard... Uh, Michael Jackson's Billie Jean, the monstrous epical hit that I think it's fair to say features a, a reinterpretation of the uh, of the bol- of of the uh, very important baseline of that song. Yeah, well, I, 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 I got to tell you, when we did the We Are the World session, there was a lot of uh, uh, sort of casual conversation between the, the musicians that were in the room. And uh, Michael came over to me. And uh, he doesn't talk much to anybody, but he, he uh, t- you know, he decided he was going to have sort of having a conversation with me. And we were talking and he said, uh, he said, you know, I hope you don't mind, man. I took, you know, I, I, I stole I stole Billie Jean from you. You, you. you OK with that? And I said, well, sure, of course, Michael. What do I care? You know, I mean, what you did was great. So that's from Michael's mouth. It's I mean, it's kind of an amazing thing. And it, what I like about it is that, you know, there's there's no denying Michael Jackson bringing his full Michael Jacksonness to to his record, um, and there's no denying that the you guys bringing your full hollow notesness to to your record, and they're very different songs. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, you know, there's no foul there, man. That's that's completely acceptable. More with Daryl Hall after a break. It's the sound of Young America for MaximumFun.org and PRI. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.
It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Daryl Hall, the uh, songwriter, uh, frequent songwriter and lead singer of the duo Hall and Oates, who have had innumerable smash hits. More recently, he's been uh, the star of a web series called Live from Daryl's House, in which he collaborates with musicians uh, both known to him and relatively unknown to him in his, uh, is it 17th century home? Uh, 18th. 18th century home. Um, Daryl, this is sort of an interesting inversion of, uh, of touring. Um, the idea that you've sort of, you've sort of taken this, you've taken the musician's life of going from town to town and, and turned it into, uh, bringing, bringing the world to you. Well, that was exactly the idea. I, I, I've been touring, my whole adult life. And I thought, okay, well, I still like touring, but not on the, uh, in the intense schedule that I've had over the years. And I wanted to do other things. So, uh, I said, let's turn it all upside down. Let's bring the world to me. The internet allows this because, uh, it's a new world. And, uh, let's, uh, uh, you know, let's let's instead of uh, artists having an act, let's drop the act, no act at all, and uh, no audience. Instead of having an audience, the audience is a fly on the wall, and so basically turn everything that people usually are uh, ex- expect to see and hear in music, turn it upside down. Let's hear some music from the show. This is my guest Daryl Hall with Sharon Jones of the Dap Kings. Uh, they are performing a song called "Got a Thing in My Mind." From uh, Daryl Hall's web series. One of the many people that you've welcomed into your home is is one of a you know one of pop music history's greatest songwriters and singers, Smokey yeah. Robinson. And I, I want to play a little bit of uh, of a medley that the two of you did. Um, I think it was a little bit of a stealth medley. It was. Um, it, it starts it starts with uh, your iconic hit, Sarah Smile, and then. Um, you sort of ease into uh, Smokey Robinson's iconic hit, Baby, Baby. Still love you until the day is near. 
So in your um, in the in this sort of like retrospective of the year episode of your show, you you say that um, that like the like handlers that you'd spoken to had said like Smokey's not going to play Baby Baby like he's done playing Baby yeah. Baby, um, and you sort of slid it in. Is that true? Exactly. It, it, that was the weirdest thing because I was so excited to have Smokey at the house. See, I'm like all the kids that come to my house. I'm the old, I, I'm the veteran, and the kids are the new newcomers. Well, Smokey, you listen to that "Girl I Love You" song. You know the first re- record I ever cut. I'm trying to be Smokey, man. There's no bones about it, and. He is such an iconic figure to me. Now, I was lucky enough to have known him over the years, but I've never worked with him in that kind of capacity. So when I heard, you know, in the, in the, the talking of the, as you said, talking with the handlers, well, Smokey doesn't really want to sing with Baby Baby. I said, what? This is like his, one of his best songs. And oh, he doesn't really want to sing it. And who knew why? And I sat with T-Bone. I said, Smokey doesn't want to sing with Baby Baby. And we said, you know what? We're, we're just going to make this happen. And if you watch that episode, that, that bit, you'll see how T-Bone and I drew it out of him, drew it out of him. And it's really an interesting thing. Uh, and we got him to do it, man. Well, Daryl, thank you so much for being on The Sound of Young America. It was really fun to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. Daryl Hall is uh, one half of the duo Hall and & Oates and the man behind uh, dozens of hit records. He's also the host of Live from Daryl's House, a web series in which he invites uh, musicians as diverse as uh, Todd Rundgren and Sharon Jones and Toots from Toots and the May- Maytals to uh, collaborate with him musically and uh, check out his cool house and uh, make and eat some food. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. You can find all of our programs online for free at MaximumFun.org, including our comedy talk show, Jordan, Jesse, Go, in addition to The Sound of Young America, and lots of other cool stuff. If you have thoughts about the show or you want to bring us out to perform at your local cabaret venue, I don't know why we would perform at a cabaret venue. Anyway, the moral of the story is you can email me at jesse at MaximumFun.org. Otherwise, we'll see you right here, same bad time, same bad channel. Bye-bye. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.